Welcome to Code Together, a discussion series exploring the possibilities of cross-architecture development with those who live it. I'm your host, Radhika Saran. The exponential growth of data generation and its storage is driving the next phase of innovation. Scientists are now able to store information as molecules of DNA, which are scalable and accurate. With the right set of open source tools and optimizations, synthetic DNA is paving the way for the next generation of advancements. Let's talk to our guest today about digital data storage and how it's impacting the future of the storage industry. Our first guest today is Raja Apuswamy. Raja is an assistant professor in the data science department at Eurocom, a French research institute located in the sunny Sofia Antipolis Tech Valley of southern France. He is a principal investigator of EU Future and Emerging Technologies project, Olio Archive, which focuses on DNA data storage. Welcome, Raja. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Radhika. It's really great to be here. Our next guest is our very own Sujata Tabriwal. She leads a cross-functional forum of open source leaders from around the community, including Intel. She's also a cherished guest at the Code Together podcast channel. Welcome, Sujata. It's a pleasure to have you back for yet another interesting topic. Thank you so much, Radhika. Pleasure to be here. Great. Let's get started. Raja, can you tell us a little bit more about your project and what problems are you trying to solve with this? Absolutely. Yeah. So I can summarize the problem in a very simple way. So every single day, especially given that it's summer now, all of us want to go on vacations. All of us want to tour. We all take a lot of photographs when we travel. So a thought exercise that many of us actually can do is suppose I want to pass a photograph that I've taken now. I want to pass it down to people who are two generations after me or three generations after me. So people who are going to be living a hundred years into the future. If I want to pass down a family heirloom, a photograph down to those people, how would I actually pass it down? I think this is the fundamental question. You know, nowadays that we are storing all this data, all whether it's photographs, videos, files, we are storing all this information, all this data in the form of digital data in one way or the other, right? So all these are actually sitting somewhere on a hard disk or sitting somewhere on our computers. And we never actually think about how long is this data going to be with us? And what happens when that hard disk or when the computer fails, right? So in a nutshell, the real problem that we are looking at, that we are trying to solve is one that has not been solved till date. And the problem is long-term data storage. So how do we keep data for a very, very long time? So that's exactly the question that we are actually looking at. And you know, in this particular context, we are actually looking at new types of storage media. So not existing storage media like hard disk drives or tape or solid state storage, but we are actually looking at new types of storage media. And one that I'm particularly excited about is synthetic DNA. That's exciting, Raja. And as you were talking, I was just thinking that one of the criteria for this kind of storage is that it should survive, it should be robust and maybe even able to store and retrieve data without much power, like, you know, small footprint. Otherwise, it will not be able to pass on through generations because 
what is going on in my head is all those massive data centers of today which are running netflix and amazon prime and all that with their massive cooling capacity required and the power hungry servers that is required to run them yes that's actually a very good point sujatha in fact that's one of the key problems that we have today right is the fact that storage actually consumes quite a bit of power power is one aspect of it but in general storage is actually quite expensive based on the storage devices that we have so if we look at a simple example of facebook or instagram for example where you know people are constantly uploading millions and millions of photographs every minute and instagram and facebook have the responsibility to keep these photographs essentially forever right i mean people who have a facebook account they would be pretty upset if facebook went ahead and told them that i'm going to delete your photographs 5 years from now so basically this has created a push especially in the cloud as you mentioned for companies which operate at cloud scale particularly facebook or any of the large hyperscalers right it's created a push for them to innovate in terms of long term storage and one of the key aspects they are looking at as you mentioned really is the price point now on the price aspect there is of course the power aspect which basically is how much power does the storage consume and if it consumes more power you need to bring in cooling facilities you need to pay your electricity bills all of that that's one aspect of it there is also the aspect of how long is my storage device going to last that's also something you touched upon in fact of the storage devices that we actually have today so we can say like we have hard disk solid state storage and tape these are the you know most popular storage devices if you ask the question how long can these popular storage devices last it turns out that most storage devices we have almost all storage devices the popular ones we have available today do not last longer than let's say 10 or 20 years what this really means for hyperscalers is every few years they actually need to change right they need to go from one generation of storage to the next generation of storage in order to deal with this kind of media decay right so when media fails they need to replace the media now what's interesting here is that this problem is not something that affects only the hyperscalers this is something as i mentioned in the thought experiment if you think of who else is storing data for a very long time think of museums whenever we go to the louvre for example so i'm based in france so if we go to the louvre here in france most of us actually see paintings and pictures but today art is increasingly digital right so there are a lot of artists around the world who are creating digital art and all this digital art need to be preserved essentially forever right this is part of our collective cultural heritage and in many cases there are also museums which are taking not digital art but things that were actually analog so things like paintings that were done 400 years back 500 years back a very good example of this is our collaboration with the danish national archives so this is the national archive in denmark and these guys they actually have the responsibility of preserving paintings key culturally significant documents over several years right essentially over the lifetime and one of the key things that we are looking at in this context for example is a painting from a very famous king in denmark which was done in 1500 or 1600 so it's been 500 years this painting has been preserved and now they have a digital version of the painting so the physical painting has been preserved for 500 years but now they don't know how to preserve this digital painting longer than 10 years or 20 years right and so we are actually working with museums we are trying to work together with archives we are trying to work together with memory institutions that's what you call them and this is another class of people who actually similar to the hyperscalers they want to preserve data for a very long time but they don't have the scale they don't have the ability or essentially the monetary might right of the hyperscaler so they want a solution that can actually work 
at a much cheaper cost, much more scalable at a smaller footprint that's robust and green, as you mentioned. Wow. This is a cross-collaboration project working with artists, with museum, with libraries. And of course, this is technology, right? So digital data, like, you know, how to retrieve, how to store. And of course, you're working with synthetic DNA, which is an organic material. This is like a perfect example of what today's modern technology is about, innovation, not innovating in a silo, but innovating cross technology domain, which traditionally we used to think, okay, this thing can happen only in the silo of DNA specialists or storage specialists or museums and artists. And it's like, wow. Indeed, indeed. Can you talk a little bit more about how do you collaborate with all these people? Is there any methodology or something on how do you work with all of these different, different type of people? Indeed, that's a very good observation. This is a very interdisciplinary problem, both from the problem point of view, right? Because it comes from all these different domains, but also from the solution point of view. Essentially, you need to bring together biologists who actually know how to do wet lab work on the DNA. You need to bring them together with computer scientists together with chemists who can actually manufacture DNA, together with uh, material science people and people who work on microfluidics and robotics who know how to build machinery that can automate the process of storing and retrieving data on DNA. So it's a very, very large-scale interdisciplinary initiative. And your question is absolutely relevant here. In fact, no single person can go at this alone, right? And so you asked about the methodology of how we do it, and this is precisely why the European Union has a class of projects that's called the Future and Emerging Technologies Initiative. So European Union offers grants for many different projects. And this particular type of project, which is called the FET, is really targeted for this kind of interdisciplinary work. And the goal of FET is to bring together experts in these different disciplines under a single umbrella to solve a major societal challenge. And that's exactly what we are doing here. So there's a clear system in place, a clear method in place for people to collaborate together and the European Union facilitates it. And we, in 2019, put together one such FED project called Oligo Archive, which spans several countries and several groups working on all these different domains. And that's kind of how we do the cross-collaboration. And so throwing back in terms of the cross-collaboration, I actually wanted to also ask you, because I know you have been on the One API side of things, and now you're on the open source side of things. Also, of course, you've worked with many different teams and many different technologies. So I wanted to ask you both in terms of Intel and from your point of view, is there any specific methodology that you follow in terms of coordinating activities across these different people? You know, I have been running the Intel Software Innovator Program even before I took up One API as a technology. I was running this Intel Software Innovator Program for NFB and SDN, so networking technology. I can't even count how many open source projects were under that umbrella. And One API itself is a beast. The name is One API, but under the hood, it is a full stack starting from firmware to the, you know, orchestration layer to the applications in AI, ML, HPC, IoT, etc. So it's a beast in itself. And finding people who are working in all of these domains. So because One API has so many components, it can be used by many practitioners, right? So an innovator who's working in AI ML can use one API. An innovator who is working with an application which uses Circle for an HPC application can use it. Your application for, comes in that aspect, but then your application is 
one oligo, a synthetic DNA, but then there are many others. NAMD is another very good example, which is like molecular simulation. Then there's epistasis detection. You know, that innovator you're working with, Professor Alexander, he's been a guest in this podcast before. And then also something completely diametrically opposite, like, you know, face detection, for example, right? Like foreign banking application. So basically what it boils down to is like, you know, how that workload can be, you know, boiled down to the simple set of instructions, procedures. And that's what One API does, gives a language to optimize these simple set of instructions to do it parallelly. And that's what all of these innovators are doing. So, you know, to work with all of them, basically I have to understand what their problem is and how we can solve that problem, how as intern we can enable them, but also not dictating them what to do, like just help them use us as tools. So we have an engineering force behind all of this mechanism and also open source community. Don't forget the open source community. So my role was basically just a facilitator, problem solver, connecting people, just helping. So I think that is how I built the community and work with them. And I think working with such a diverse set of people, only that is the thing that can work. Just be open to listen, help them, then step back and let them do the job. Indeed, indeed. Yes. In general, I think that's excellent advice, right? So that's kind of the similar approach that I think that any interdisciplinary initiative should follow, right? Because when you look at synthetic DNA storage or in general, any problem that requires expertise from multiple domains, you know, it's extremely unlikely for one person to have the knowledge of everything. And so it's really important for people in their domains to bring their skill set. And it's important to establish these kind of interfaces that people can actually have so that they understand what each person is talking about, right? Without having to know too much about the individual domain. I think that's one of the key challenges in any interdisciplinary project. Yeah, that's another thing, right? Like, you know, abstraction. <laughs> Indeed. So you can know how much you need to know and then let the experts deal with the depth of it. Just let them go. Give them the freedom to work. But then when we are talking about abstraction and standardizing the processes, do you have any standardization when you're working with these different groups? At least there's some common language that everybody can talk while they are also working on their individual work. Yeah, that's really another interesting point, right? So broadly speaking, at the storage level, you can see there are many standards. So for traditional storage devices, you have the SATA standard or the SAS standard. Now we have NVMe devices. So all these interface standards are there for storage devices. So starting from that point, we don't have a standard for DNA storage yet. That's definitely because DNA storage is very new. And so it's still you know, an emerging technology. It's not a fully mature technology compared to other storage media. So at the DNA storage level, there is no standard yet, but things are moving very fast. So you might be aware that there is an alliance of people who are working on DNA storage. It's called the DNA Storage Alliance, aptly named. And we have many leaders in DNA storage, you know, including companies that actually manufacture DNA. Microsoft Research is a part of it. Many, many universities are a part of it. Some traditional storage companies are a part of it. And so this alliance is trying to standardize various aspects of DNA storage 
And from Oligo Archive, we are also a part of this DNA Storage Alliance. So we have some key members in Oligo Archive playing a part of this. So the goal is hopefully in the near future, we will work on standardizing the interface to DNA as a storage device also, right? So that's at the storage level. In terms of what you mentioned in terms of interfaces and standards, when it comes to talking to people or when it comes to collaborating with people, I think that's another pretty interesting problem. One of the key aspects of the project also is this, right? So we have all these different components, as I told you, and what we want to build is a stack. So we actually want to build multiple layers in the DNA storage stack, and each layer will actually have a responsibility. So the bottom most layer, you can think of it as a box or a disk, right? A DNA disk. And inside this DNA disk, whatever is there inside this DNA disk is something that involves chemistry for manufacturing the DNA, uh, biochemistry. And then you actually have sequencing technologies for reading the DNA back. Now, anything inside this DNA disk is something that, you know, the layers above are not going to see. Okay, so we are going to put an abstraction over it. Now, the layer above that, we can actually have methods to actually encode and decode data on DNA, right? So I'll get into details of all this, but essentially what I'm trying to say here is, one of the key objectives of this project, Oligo Archive, is to identify how many layers should we have, what are those layers, and what should the interfaces be. And once we identify this, we can actually assign different people to different layers, right? And because we have standard interfaces in these layers, people can actually work within their layer while making sure that everybody's work is going to be compatible. So that's something that we are actually doing. Awesome. So I just wanted to understand coming from networking, for example, and also an API and like, you know, C, C++ standards, et cetera. This general push in the industry today going towards open source as de facto standards versus actual standardization, because, you know, standardization has a notorious reputation of being very slow. What is your thoughts on that? I think open source really promotes innovation, right? We have seen a major shift, especially in the last decade. So one of the other areas that I work on is data management. So I work on databases and data analytics. And you can really see like most popular database solutions right now these days, many of them are open source in one way or the other. And it really will spur innovation. From the point of view of DNA storage particularly, there are many components that we are actually making open source. In fact, the European Union requires that whatever work with that we actually do in the project you know, because we do have a startup in the project which works on manufacturing DNA, there are certain aspects of the work that can be critical for their growth, the startup's growth. So those aspects are protected. But otherwise, anything that's not really critical for the project, we have to make open source and we have to make all the data and the code available to the public. So this is something that's a part of European Union. I think European Union projects are fantastic in this aspect. They really try to push the researchers as far as possible to make sure that you know, things are open, things are reproducible. And so I think it's a very, very good thing in general. Wow. Yeah, that's really awesome. So earlier I was advocating for open source and one API or networking or NFE, but like, you know, now in my new role, advocating for open source across the board, and maybe this is something that if audience is not aware, Intel is contributing to more than 800 plus projects. You know, in many of these open source projects, we are leading contributors. Linux is one good example. You know, one API is another example as well. But then my point is that across the industry, across the software stack, we are promoting open source. And one of the reasons, like you said, Raja, is propagating innovation, letting community do because, you know, 
even if we have a huge set of engineers, even then we are just one company and our vision can sometimes be restricted. But when we put it out in the open, the kind of innovation that the community can bring is awesome and unparalleled. We can never even imagine sometimes. For example, Raja, you are working on synthetic DNA storage. I mean, from Intel, we don't know if we could have come up with that. So, you know, that is, the <laughs> that is the innovation. I mean, again, coming back to my previous point, we are just tools. It's like, you know, what the community does with what we are developing. We are just giving the industry tools. So in that spirit, we want to make everything open source. So anyway, that brings me to the next question. We have been talking about synthetic DNA and I'm dying to hear what actually it is. So are we ready to dive a little bit deeper into what it is? Yes, absolutely. So basically the DNA that I am talking about when I say synthetic DNA is the exact same DNA that we all have in our bodies, right? So pretty much every living thing, as we all know, DNA is kind of the hereditary source of information. So the information passes down from one generation to another through DNA. So DNA is a, for biology 101, it's a macromolecule, what's called a macromolecule. It's a molecule that's composed of submolecules, and the submolecules are really four types of submolecules. So we have adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. So for all practical purposes, for this discussion, or you know, all we can think of is DNA is basically a long stretch of submolecules that are ACGT, right? So in terms of viewing DNA, we can actually view it as a string to simplify things. And it's a long string of ACGT. Now, the human DNA is about 3 billion bases long or 3 billion of these characters, right? So ACGT. When we refer to synthetic DNA, what we refer to is not the human DNA or not any biological DNA. Due to its advances over the last few decades in chemistry, we are now able to manufacture DNA outside using well-established biochemical technique. And there are several companies that are actually working on manufacturing DNA. And manufacturing DNA is a very, very key application for many biological applications. So we actually need DNA as a source for a variety of different applications. So we are now able to manufacture DNA outside the body, essentially. And this is what we refer to as synthetic DNA, right? To differentiate it from biological DNA. Traditionally, the biological DNA is double-stranded helix. So, you know, it's world famous, the Watson Crick double helix structure of DNA. The synthetic DNA does not have to be a double-stranded helix, typically. So, normally, when we talk about synthetic DNA, we're referring to one single strand of DNA, right? And that's what we refer to as the synthetic DNA that's relevant to us for the point of view of DNA storage. Now, the first question that comes to mind is, why are we talking about DNA? Why do we want to store data on DNA? There are some key properties of DNA that make it very relevant for data storage. The first property is basically the fact that it's very, very durable, right? So there is a work from Professor George Church at Harvard and his group where they actually extracted the DNA from an extinct animal species called the woolly mammoth that lived about 5,000 years ago in Siberia. So they went to Siberia, dug up the fossils, extracted the DNA, and they're basically using the DNA in combination with a variety of other technologies, particularly gene editing technologies, to try to see if they can bring the woolly mammoth back to life, right? And there is, in fact, a company that has been established that is actually trying to do what's called de-extinction, right? So the reason why I'm giving you the example is DNA can last several thousands of years in even such a you know damaging environment, right? It's not really an ideal environment to store the DNA in. And even there, it actually lasts quite long. Now, if you can store DNA without any water, 
in a fairly protected environment, right, in a neutral environment, it can actually survive, it can last for many, many, many generations, many, many, many millennia. This is the main first reason why we want to store data on DNA, because if you remember what I said in the beginning of the podcast, all the storage devices we have available today, they last about 10 or 20 years, right? And DNA can last thousands of years. The second reason why we want to store data on DNA is because it's incredibly dense. So looking at DNA, the amount of data that you can store in DNA, and if I compare it to the amount of data that you can store today on tape, DNA is about seven orders of magnitude, 10 to the seven times denser than any future projections of tape that we have available today. Wow. Yes. And this is based on a study by the Semiconductor and Synthetic Biology Consortium. So it's a very dense three-dimensional storage medium. So that's the second reason. The third reason is eternal relevance. As long as we live on this earth, we always have the need to sequence DNA, whether it's actually for health reasons, right? Because today there's a lot of you know medical applications are being driven by analyzing a patient's or a human's genome, especially, for example, if you look at precision oncology in cancer or whether it's for other reasons, whatever other reasons may be, right? We always have the need to read DNA and we always have the ability to read DNA now that we have sequencing technologies, right? We have the ability to read DNA always, which means that DNA really has this eternal relevance, right? So you will never be able to not read DNA in the future. And this is another key aspect. So think of whatever data that you might have stored on a floppy disk 20 years ago. Are you able to read it anymore? That's the question, right? I mean, for most devices, this is not possible anymore because even if the data stays on the device and even if the device has not decayed, usually the reader that's required for reading data from the device has gone extinct and you can no longer read the data anymore, right? And DNA does not have this problem. So these are the reasons why we want to look at synthetic DNA. Can we talk a little bit more about why we are talking right now? <laughs> like, you know, our connection. I know you've used one API for DNA. So how has one API helped you in your project? I think that's a very unusual link, right? Yes. Because when we talk about DNA storage, I mean, so on one hand, we have, yes, DNA storage. On the other hand, we have one API, which is kind of this cross-industry initiative to enable heterogeneous parallel programming to simplify it, right? I'm really grossly simplifying it. But what's the link between the two? One is on storage, one is on processing. It turns out the link between the two that we found was one of the key stages in actually processing data stored on DNA. So just to give you a quick overview, we store data on DNA by converting binary data zeros and ones into a sequence of nucleotides, ACGT. So think of a very simple mapping. It's not the simple mapping, it's more complicated, but for the practical purposes, think of we map, you know, zero, zero to A, zero, one to C, one, zero to G and one, one to T, right? It's much more complicated than this in practice. But once we do this mapping from binary to DNA, we can now manufacture DNA. So whatever data we have converted into DNA, we can go ahead and manufacture it. Now, when we need to read the data back from DNA, we sequence the DNA that we have manufactured. Now, the sequencing is very similar to the way COVID, for example, when you're testing in terms of RT-PCR, right? So they take a small sample from you, they amplify the sample using PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and then they sequence it to see if there is actually a COVID strain there. It's the same sequencing technology that we use to read data back from DNA. The thing is, when you read the data back from DNA, so you might have stored, let's say, data on 10 DNA strands or 100 DNA strands. When you read the data back, you don't get what you stored. What you get is a noisy copy of the original. So for every strand of DNA, you might get one copy from the sequencing or you might actually get multiple copies. So it turns out that, you know, 
the key problem here that we want to actually look at is how do you recover the original data back from these noisy copies? And here it turns out we can actually model this as a database join problem. And here is where we actually came ahead with one API because we wanted to parallelize this database join across multiple processors and one API helped us there. Yeah, that's awesome. Like you said, this is an unlikely link. So thank you for giving us that explanation on how digital to nucleotide conversion you're doing and like, you know, that processing was speeded up by one API. So for the listeners who are not familiar with one API, like Raja earlier said, it is a set of language and libraries which enables you to write program once and then be able to run it on CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, or some accelerators. This is based on something called Sickle, which has been in the industry for quite a long time. And we adopted this as the basis for one API tool chest, V meaning Intel, and then there are other key players. So this programs and library of one API it's being used at many technology verticals. So it's being used for HPC, for AIML, for vision, and for rendering, for IoT applications, and also in FPGA. So a lot of FPGA applications are making use of one API right now. It's a really interesting set of applications and libraries, and it's awesome to see the industry making use of that. And one oligo is a good example of that. So, Raja, can you focus a little bit more on how you got the acceleration with One API and how do you see it playing a role in growing adoption of analytics, AI, and machine learning in your case? Yeah, sure. So, like in terms of the acceleration with One API, as I mentioned, one of the things that my group focuses on is database acceleration. So, we modeled that particular problem that we had on DNA storage as a database join problem. And we actually implemented a database join using Data Parallel C++, and we used the One API toolkit for that. And by doing so, we were able to run the program on CPUs, GPUs, and potentially even FPGAs that we are actually looking at right now, right? Interestingly here, the fact that we chose to model it as a database problem, it actually shows the fact that One API is applicable in a much broader scope, right? And I think that's my other area of focus, which is actually data analytics acceleration. And that's what we are actually looking at in terms of One API. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, One API is a tool and it can be used. Yeah. And you're also talking about XJoin and One API acceleration? Yeah, so XJoin is the solution where we model the recovery from DNA storage as a join problem. And we actually call the solution XJoin there. Oh, okay. That's awesome. And I cannot resist because I know that we are working on something really, really very exciting and put together another group of disparate people like, you know, risk five. So one API risk five. Do you want to touch upon that? I know we will probably do a full podcast on that, but maybe give a teaser to our listeners today. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm very excited about. and I hope to come back sometime in the near future to talk about it. But essentially, one of the things that we are looking at, both in context of DNA storage and beyond, is how do we design a hardware accelerator for accelerating certain key application verticals, right? So in terms of DNA storage, as I mentioned, obviously, we want to accelerate the data retrieval from DNA. But as I mentioned, the problem, if we look at it in the point of view of data analytics, you can already imagine the market for hardware acceleration of 
you know data analytics and machine learning right and one of the key players here one of the key upcoming standards here is risk 5 which you know I'm pretty sure everybody knows about risk 5 by now it's a open standard isa right which actually gives hardware designers the freedom to come up with custom extensions to add the isa level so you can actually come up with new instructions that can actually accelerate various application verticals and because it's actually an open standard you are able to basically build off of an existing tool chain and build your own hardware accelerator using risc5 which we think is a very very powerful idea right and risc5 originated in berkeley as many other incredibly amazing architecture innovations and what we are trying to do in the group and this is still very new and that's why i mentioned i'm going to be really excited to come back again what we are trying to do is basically bring together risc5 and one api one api as the software standard for parallel programming and risk 5 as the hardware standard for developing parallel accelerators so the goal is to be able to build a customized accelerator with risk 5 and to be able to program it using a general purpose parallel programming framework like one api right and i think together these two one api and risk 5 are really going to really propel a massive innovation both in machine learning but also in unconventional domains like dna storage where we will be able to put together really customized hardware accelerators and program them very effectively and that's exactly what we are trying to do in the group in terms of one api and respy yeah this is something like you know it's it was just matter of great timing because like you said one api is open source acceleration in software right and risc5 is open source and open standards for hardware and we were looking on expanding one api's reach to risc5 and just at that time at the right time you also approached us on that and it was awesome to connect you with other innovators in the community and i know you have brought in some people into that collaboration group as well so yeah i just can't wait to see what this panel comes up with indeed yes lot of exciting things to look forward to All right, thank you. This has been very exciting. Obviously, lots to talk about. But Raja, are there any other resources you'd like to share with our audience? Absolutely. Yes, there's plenty of stuff that I couldn't share in detail because of the time constraint. I would like to share the official Oligo Archive website, so it's oligoarchive.eu, where we have plenty of information about the project, about DNA storage. Also, on Intel DevMesh, most of the work that we have done on One API is publicly available for people to go ahead and play around with. So, I think these are the two main resources that I would like to share. That's great, Sujatha. What resources can you recommend from Intel? So, One API definitely they can look at oneapi dot com, and then at Intel Software Developer Zone they will find One API's technologies. So, there's loads of information there, like many tutorials, etc. on the industry initiative side it is oneapi.com and at a overall level if you want to look at what intel is doing in open source in general beyond oneapi you can look at openintel.com and that is the website where we talk about all the different open source projects that we are collaborating on in the industry Perfect. This has been a great conversation and I want to thank you both Raja and Sujatha for this amazing discussion. Thank you very much Radhika. It was really a pleasure to be here and thank you Sujatha for all the exciting questions, right? And I hope to be able to come back sometime soon to share more details about our work. Yeah, thank you so much Raja for working with us. You've been a, in the true sense of the word innovator. <laughs> And thank you Radhika for having me. 
Oh, it was a pleasure and thank you for taking the time. And a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. Let's continue the conversation at oneapi.com. Thank you.